It's been a long time since I smelled beautiful. It's the best forgotten Welcome back to this, the second season of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time furry, Andrew Phillips. Do you know what a furry is? No. A furry is somebody who um, cosplays as foxes and animals and usually has like butt plugs that have oh, like, okay. fairy tails and whatnot. Okay. So you are a part-time furry in this scenario. I originally had you as a Vin Diesel cosplayer. But I thought, no, I'll go down the more humiliating route. Alright. <laughs> that is the sound of two foxes having sex. I know that from experience. It, it was perfect. I have such an erection right now. Yeah. Bang on. A spine erection. <laughs> <laughs> and in the first episode of our new season, we venture to the Underverse and beyond as we tackle Vin Diesel's Dune for Dummies, <laughs> The Chronicles of Riddick. They are a plague that now sweeps through the worlds of man, leaving behind a trail of dead planets and towering icons, monuments to their unholy crusade. All those poets on all those worlds who spoke of war as such an unsightly thing, they never stood here. Never fails to inspire, does it? Each time a world falls. The Necromongers, a dark army that will convert or kill every last human life, unless they can be stopped. But sometimes the only way to stop evil is not with good. You must confront it with another kind of evil. Yes, Best Forgotten Movies is back for a limited seven episode run. And with it, we're bringing a handful of changes to our format. So why are we changing Best Forgotten Movies? Well, it just became something of an undertaking for both of us, really. We were recording episodes up to three hours long and trying to edit them down to a manageable one hour and a half <laughs> format. And it just a wasn't manageable working. two hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, it just became too much considering everything that we had going on in our lives. So now we've streamlined the format, so we're losing a lot of the chaff. Yeah, it's now going to be five minutes long. Yeah, so <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. Uh, tune in next episode. When... <laughs> yeah, Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> the end. It was ridiculous. So yeah, our episodes will run shorter, but they will be no less in terms of quality which was never high in the first place. (laughs) So yes, for our first episode, we're searching through the dark for Vin Diesel's charisma in The Chronicles of Riddick. And why has this film been chosen for discussion? So each week, either of us are going to choose a film for discussion on the podcast. And this week, I have chosen The Chronicles of Riddick. And why have I chosen it? Well, even within its own franchise, its own, like, forgotten franchise, Riddick itself, it's... uh... It's, it's a always, black sheep. Yeah, it, it is. It's always been the lesser, the second tier Vin Diesel franchise, which <laughs> says, says everything, really. This is the one of that franchise that everybody kind of forgets or looks over. And even the people that made it, we had Pitch Black, which was essentially a sci-fi monster movie. Then the Chronicles of Riddick, which was a space opera. And then they returned back to the sci-fi monster movie with the sequel to that film, Riddick. It's uh, 
It, they've essentially even tried to write it out and forget it yeah, amongst yeah. its own franchise. So that's why I decided to choose it. I wanted to do something with a bit of punch as well, so, uh, like a space opera. I wanted to do something fun. Yeah. So, Andy, what were your first experiences with The Chronicles of Riddick? I'd never seen the film because I'd seen Pitch Black and didn't think too much of it. Yeah. So when it came around for Chronicles of Riddick coming out... I saw the promotion and everything for it, but then I just didn't go out and see it. I just, uh, I mm-hmm. was one of those many that yeah. probably didn't go out and see it because uh, Pitch Black really didn't impress me that much. But yeah, so I had really low expectations watching this film, but they were actually um, met and exceeded. I was actually pleasantly surprised. Although we do have to say that we did watch the director's cut of this film, not the original theatrical version. Yeah, straight from the top, the director's cut is the film to watch. However, I do think that many people listening to this podcast that, for a start, not many people went to the cinema to watch yeah, this film in the first place. the only place. one mainly available as well. Exactly. It, so. I put my Blu-ray in expecting to be able to choose between the theatrical cut and the director's cut, but no, it's just straight onto the director's cut, and there is no option to watch any theatrical cut. That They are writing that out of existence, yeah. and actually, judging from memory, you can see why, because yeah. those extra 15 minutes do make a difference. Yeah, It always speaks volumes of how much a theatrical cut that has been messed with or tampered with or something, how much it fails that later on the uh, original is just forgotten about and the director's cut becomes de facto. Biggest example of that is uh, one of our previous ones, which is Kingdom of Heaven, like the Blu-ray. Of course. Is just the director's cut and I think the theatrical is almost like a special feature on some editions now. Yeah, yeah, it is. To sort of poke and laugh at. (laughs) Well, just to say where I am coming at this franchise from, I'm pretty sure I did go to the cinema to see The Chronicles of Riddick. I liked Pitch Black. I thought it was very enjoyable. Uh, We do have a differing opinion in that because I know that you don't really like that film whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I liked Pitch Black. I thought it was derivative but fun. And The Chronicles of Riddick was absolutely and completely different from what I expected it was going to be at all. I was expecting just more of the same of Pitch Black. And what I got was what I said earlier, which was Dune for dummies. Yeah. And at the time, I kind of balked. I, I liked some of its ambitions, but I'm not too sure I liked the film. But I've warmed to it over the years, actually, to yeah. be honest. But yeah, so I was very much looking forward to coming back around and watching this film. Especially now that Vin Diesel is enjoying a second, I don't know, life in his own career, really. Uh, ever, since, ever since Fast Five, yeah, his career has just come out of the doldrums because he was one of those actors that was really in danger of just being a real has-been. Would you believe that Forbes last year announced him as being the number one actor for making the most profit? He was involved in the most profitable films. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that does not include his works on the likes of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, his voice work. That's just films that he appeared in. (laughs) Which is quite amazing considering at one point he was considered box office poison. I mean, that was during like his The Pacifier (laughs) years. I was going to say The Pacifist. (laughs) Have you seen The Pacifier? No. Oh, it's it's great. I'm going to say great. It's awful. Yeah, I wouldn't consider myself a uh, a Vin Diesel diehard fan or anything. I'm not, but he was one of those actors while at college me and my group of friends used to like his films ironically almost. Mm. We used to make Vin Diesel jokes, like 2 plus 2 equals Vin Diesel. That's <laughs> <laughs> being one of them. We actually yeah. got that printed on a t-shirt at one point. It probably still speaks volumes that his greatest role is still the Iron Giant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it well, does. He says rock about 20 times. And that his, second, his second best role is just repeating the word I, I am, am Groot. the phrase I am Groot so <laughs> it says everything and when he's not actually seen <laughs> yeah. 
So yes, we decided to watch the Chronicles of Riddick. Now this would normally be the point where we go into our context, but actually, I just want to nah. jump in. We're gonna skip that and any context that we have, any kind of history of the making of this film, which there isn't really that much. No, uh, we're I mean, just going to include in our conversation. Yeah, I think the, the only itself. thing I think the only thing I garnered was when they asked for a sequel to Pitch Black. I think he wrote three scripts for like a trilogy of potential sequels and they presented them to the studio in, in leather-bound books. And the only other thing is that Vin Diesel really wanted Judy Dench to be in the film for some reason. Yes. And he really lobbied. And apparently she really enjoyed the sets. Had no idea what it was about, but really enjoyed the sets. <laughs> I saw that that she had wrote in her book that she said that the yeah. sets were fantastic. And Vin Diesel also um, kitted out her room with her favourite flowers or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. But I, a little curious fact about those binders that they made, which included the scripts for these three films. They were locked. Yeah. And they only provided a key to the first one, Chronicles of Riddick. I suspect the other two remained... <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> gathering dust somewhere God. oh dear yeah because i assume that that second film was not going to be riddick no so you were pleasantly surprised by this film i've got to say straight from the off i didn't expect you to hate it or dislike it in the same way you do pitch black but i did not expect you to have a positive experience watching this and you were pleasantly surprised yeah i really loved all the space opera stuff it's not every day you get to see things like that put on film, especially these days, because they generally are box office poison. <laughs> yeah. Like, it is June for dummies, and it takes inspiration from a, a whole host of other films that have flopped <laughs> as well. Like, there's a little bit of Dark City in there. Yeah. There's some Hellraiser in there as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, there definitely is. It's not every day you get to see these grand space operas play out. And yeah, it's a little bit hammy in mm -hmm. places. It's a little bit cheesy in the way some of it's been shot yeah. and put together. In better hands, it probably could have worked a lot better. I mean, the main thing that really lets it down are all the other elements in the piece that yeah. take us away from that world. When it almost that film really, <laughs> yeah. When it almost kind of reverts to being more of a pitch black type of film, yeah. Where it's about yeah. the bounty hunters and the mercenaries, and you get the feeling that you have seen this type of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like Joss Whedon light. Yeah. Whereas the space opera stuff is more overblown, and like you say, you don't get to see much of it in cinema anymore, really. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it feels fresher. Yeah. Actually, and that's probably actually why some of that stuff failed to land was because it was just remarkably different. And why with Riddick, the last film in the series, it's actually reverted back to type. I mean, even though I, I like a lot of that film in a middling kind of way, it's um, it's a it's a good second tier B movie, but it does just feel like a retelling of Pitch Black. It's once more Riddick on a planet with mercenaries and some aliens or monsters that have a gimmick to them that come out at night, which is essentially just pitch black. Yeah, yeah. So I do, I agree with you. I think a lot of the uh, the space opera stuff, although it must have been jarring for fans of pitch black coming into this film and it being a completely different genre almost, I really respond to that, actually. And I feel as well, like, with a character like Riddick, the second film uses him so much better. I remember even in the first film, and going, oh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting character. They do nothing with him. Yeah. Like, he's got a lot of potential that's untapped. And I feel like with this film, they really sort of went to town in terms of fleshing him out and letting us see what he really can do. Yeah, in the first film, they keep referring to him as a killer. And every now and again, you do get to see just how he is such a seasoned killer. But, but in this film, you do really get to see why he's regarded as being such a kind of legendary badass, almost, to use a, a cliche. It's good to see him have more action, more things to do 
I think he actually has more of a presence in this film. And obviously, it's because it's about him and he isn't just a supporting player. Mm. And going back to what Pitch Black actually establishes, it's an aliens derivative, and there are many aliens derivatives that you can watch. Yeah, yeah. So the world building in this film has a lot to do, and I think David Twohy, the um, Twohy, 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 I think, yeah, Twohy, 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 Twohy. Twohy. Um, so David Twohy, he actually um, he said when they were approached by Universal to make the film that they didn't actually have any plans to do anything with Riddick. They hadn't actually planned out the universe beyond Pitch Black. And I do think that shows. But I actually like the fact that they've took this blank canvas and they haven't just continued it along those same lines into that rusty, lived-in world of aliens and industries and stuff like that. But they've actually taken it in a fantasy direction yeah. and they've embraced the fantasy elements. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure there's an Akiva Goldsman script out there somewhere that is basically just a, a rewrite of, of Pitch Black as a potential yeah. sequel yes. that they had. I read something about it online. I could only find a snippet of it, and I think this was on the IMDb trivia section, but it was about Riddick fighting the monsters from Pitch Black underneath a city somewhere. Yeah, it's like, it's Pitch Black underground. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically, (laughs) yeah. It sounded like all those rejected Alien 3 scripts. Yes. That they had. It sounded like, yeah, aliens on a boat, aliens (laughs) on a plane, uh, aliens revisited Back to the Future Part 2 style, and, you know... There's so many crap ones out there. Yeah. So, yeah, I really applauded them for sort of not going down that route and deciding, right, we're even going to have a change of sort of genre here and just almost like, yeah, doing Aliens, but in terms of not repeating the first film and just expanding the world out a lot more and seeing where this character actually exists, his place in the universe sort of thing. Having said that, I feel like in places they get ahead of themselves and they kind of zip around too much. It's not focused enough. It's like there's a balance here. Yeah. Where there are places in this film where it it should have focused on the elements that were new more instead of being dragged back by those older elements. Yeah. Yeah, it does zip around a bit and there's a lot of title cards telling you where we are and things like that, (laughs) which is always a problem with space operas. And I do think as well, even though I do love the world building, and I'll say that that is mainly regarding the necro mongers and the underverse and mm. all of the type of shakespeare in the park stuff i love all of that i love all yeah. of the space opery stuff but actually when it comes to expanding the character of riddick i'm not completely sold on this fury and backstory and not in regards of what they have as a backstory but just in the execution of yeah it. when it's you very have... strange the way they do yeah that. you have this character this female character from riddick's past like a legend or something who continues to just uh, appear at different three uh, random yeah, points three yeah. separate intervals in the film and she just imparts us with some exposition and disappears yeah it's very poorly done in that respect that part of the film <laughs> exactly I, yeah. I do feel like in the actual theatrical cut those parts well they were completely excised to begin with yeah yeah those are a couple of scenes that i think could have used with staying on the cutting room floor. yeah yeah i think so but at the same time i admire the ambition even if these ambitions do outstretch david twohey's reach in terms of how he can execute it and it does feel like putting the cart before the horse in terms of trying to set up this trilogy you know it's something that was supposed to pay off later mm. but it doesn't actually ever come to pay off it's completely redundant now 
and so it sticks out like a sore thumb it's not been justified because mm-hmm. there's been no sequel to elaborate on to that. follow this up yeah yeah and i do think there's space for that I, yeah I, there might be well they are talking about doing a riddick four aren't they yeah but yeah whether that'll just be yet another repeat of pitch black will, will remain to be seen really <laughs> Well, there's a going joke among some bloggers online that the Riddick series is a series that is made to an audience of one, and that <laughs> one person is Vin Diesel. And every few years, well, every few years, every uh, time he kind of gains in prominency in the industry, he kind of cashes in all of his uh, goodwill checks and makes a Riddick film. <laughs> fancy uh, project. So if he's been named by Forbes as the number one box office drawer of last year, then maybe it's time for him to start to cash in his checks again. Is yeah. Well, that, yeah, I'm thinking like where this sits, like we talked about it before being the second tier Vin Diesel franchise, but we have to always remember that there's a triple X as well. Oh, of course. So I was like, is that the third tier or is... Yeah, I'm thinking it's the third tier, <laughs> triple X. Well, we did actually have a triple X three last year, didn't we? We did, yeah. That was released. I saw it and and, and I'm scratching my head now saying, did we, was it last year? Did we <laughs> it, it was last year. And I actually went to the cinema to see that <laughs> film. It was exactly the type of enjoyable trash that I wanted from it. Yeah. And I've completely forgotten making another one. everything about it. Mm. I, it was one of those films, I think, that was saved by the international, international market. International audience, yeah. yeah. Which very much so, I imagine, is what they have in store for Riddick whenever yeah, they move yeah. forward with it. This is something I think that they, especially with all of this space opera stuff, if this is something that they want to lean on, it's going to play better to audiences in international markets. Yeah. You were mentioning before the podcast as well that it's a shame that we don't get to see films. Of, it's a uh, shame that, that we don't get, to, don't get to see films full stop anymore. They seem to all be going to uh, television in order to work. Yes. Something like this does work and works, for some strange reason, much better in a television format. Yeah. Because I was saying to you, if they'd actually made a film of Game of Thrones initially, would anyone have gone and mm. seen it? Even if it was great, I don't think that anyone would have gone out to see it. So, yeah, the landscape is completely different. And, yeah, we were talking about films like Bright Now, which are essentially $100 million made-for-television movies and, yeah, and things like that. So, yeah, in terms of the climate that this film was released in, it's a completely different world. But I feel like even for this film now, if this film came out in the format that it was, it might even do worse. Yeah. Because even, like, you know, like films of last year that we really liked, like Blade Runner 2049 and, and even Star Wars The Last Jedi being a little bit more sort of out there than the previous entries didn't do as well mm-hmm. as say the more sort of populist uh, yeah. less risky versions of those kind of films so i just feel like with this film they perhaps got ahead of themselves and in a good way i suppose didn't think too much about their audience which unfortunately did come to bite them on the ass yeah. eventually. Well, speaking about Star Wars for a moment, I think this is a good place to actually like start actually talking in specifics in regards to a few scenes that I actually really like in the film. But one thing I liked was, in a way, it definitely feels like a post-prequels film. And yeah. I actually feel like it does what the Star Wars prequels did, but far better. Yeah, it's like post-prequels, post-rings. Yes, as yeah. well, isn't it? So you do feel like it's trying to push the CGI element far beyond what they can actually achieve. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also embracing a lot of kind of like fancy elements that really make the film quite cool and expanded and the universe feel large. Mm. But um, there was a scene that I actually really enjoyed watching it this time around that I um, I had completely forgotten, but that was the Siege of New Mecca when the mm. Necromongers do actually arrive. I mean, let's talk about the Necromongers for a second because yeah. these were derided i think actually the inclusion of the necromongers and all of their law was actually derided when the film was first released and again i think it's just going back to the idea that people weren't expecting it to be 
a space opera. Mm, yeah. But actually watching it back now, I love all of that stuff and I love the design of the Necromongers themselves. This um, this type of, like it alludes to Roman. I guess he, David Twohey's drawing from the past to influence the future in a way. But uh, they've got this kind of like Roman architecture look to them as well. That's... Yeah, it looks like if Giga drew Roman landscapes, mm. kind of a mesh between the two. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, all this stuff that he did for Jodorowsky's Dune. And also, there's little bits of the production design of Titus in there as well. I was thinking about Titus, actually, when I was watching this film. But there's I, a little I, bit of Julie Taymor in there. Yes, yeah, there is. I guess it's that kind of camp theatrical element yeah. that comes along with it. Um, yeah, Shakespeare in the Park. It is definitely <laughs> Shakespeare in the Park. I like how Vin Diesel's Riddick actually fits into this world in terms of that Shakespeare in the Park element because you do have all these characters that are speaking in very over-the-top ways and then you have essentially Vin Diesel coming into the scene and pissing on their parade. He has all the grace of a bull. Yeah, and he's, he's completely there to mock it, really. them. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I don't think people really understood the point of that. I think they kind of just saw it as oh yeah, they're being sort of hammy and yeah, uh, hammy's sake. I was like, no, that's the point of it being hammy is the fact that he's there to undercut it. Yeah. Even the mercenary stuff is I suppose written in a certain way for him to sort of subvert it. Yeah. He's a very subversive character. Well, that's it. Every time these Shakespearean characters start to feel a little bit too full of their own importance, he's there to completely cut them down with a one-liner. And it might be a cheesy one-liner here or there, but Mm. completely just, like I say, piss on their parade. Yeah. Although I will say that Vin Diesel does have one of the worst lines in cinema history, which is uh, when he catches the scent of Thandi Newton, he turns around and says, it's been a long time since I smelt beautiful. Oh, yeah, I remember cringing at that one. And ugh, there's a few, there's a there's real a few in groaners in there. Just like, why? Yeah. Why did they do that? But yeah, uh, talking about the Necromongers, I love the stuff to do with the law, like in terms of Keith David's character says, oh, you know, the comet always precedes them. And then you find out that the comet is actually the Necromonger ship's A giant up. penis in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I almost thought that when that started to come down, it's basically a giant penis covered in cum uh, <laughs> coming down <laughs> in the sky. And I was just, I just imagine scenes from Austin Powers' spy, Shaq Mewing, where it was like, there's a giant Willy Taco coming down. Uh, it, it just that part of it looked quite funny, I have yes. to say. But it was the rest of it that followed was pretty good. Yeah, and like I said, it was going towards Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Star Wars seems to draw from dogfights of World War Two, this one draws from the Blitz in the Necromonger attack. I really like that scene where mm. the people of, what it's, I forgot what it's called, Helium Prime? Helium he- Prime. Yeah. Helium Prime are fighting off the Necromonger attack. And I liked, again, he's drawing from the past to influence what he's making in the future. It gives you that emotional connection to what you're seeing. Yeah, it's the Helium Prime stuff I think probably works the best in terms of having characters from the previous film in it with the yeah. Imam character. I felt that was a uh, good way of having some sort of crossover between the films. Yeah. It was interesting as well. I, do, I was thinking about it earlier that this film in contrast to pitch black is a a post 9-11 film and in that respect i felt like the muslim element that was quite prominent in pitch black has been really toned down Mm -hmm. in chronicles of riddick which i thought was quite interesting and obviously yeah it is totally because it's a post 9-11 yeah i imagine it's come from a studio point of view but we still do have some studio notes thing muslim influence in terms of being new mecca the place itself is influenced by middle eastern type architecture Mm. there but future middle eastern neo middle eastern i don't know what i'm going on about here 
but they don't really go into specifics yeah, of the, the religion religious part of it and is all that really is, toned down. is toned right back. Yeah. It's pared right back. And I have a feeling that's a studio note is, oh, no, no, no. We can't do that anymore. Yeah, they kind of replace that with the Judy Dench yes. character, really, yes. don't they? Yeah, yeah, I guess the religion becomes a fantasy type yeah. of yeah. religious element mm. in the film. But talking about characters who come back for this film from Pitch Black... I want to talk about something that actually doesn't work in this film. Yeah. And let's let's get this straight. The Chronicles of Riddick is not a perfect film. I know I'm talking about it in a positive light here, but it's definitely a severely flawed film as well. Yeah, yeah. There is a large section of this film that doesn't actually work. There are moments of it I like, but it is essentially anything on crematoria. Yeah. I like the idea of the prison planet. I like some of the stuff that goes on in it. But that whole section of the film doesn't land for me because it essentially introduces a character in Kira who is a character who essentially serves as a damsel in distress for Riddick to rescue at several points in the film. And that character doesn't actually add anything to the story for me. And as a result, those scenes fail to land for yeah. me. There's an issue, and I was just thinking about it now, with that particular character. I mean, it's not to the same extent because she wasn't as prominent in Pitch Black. But you've got that problem of the uh, the Anakin thing mm-hmm. where in Phantom Menace, Anakin's a little boy. And then when he's reintroduced in Attack of the Clones, he's essentially a new character played by yes. a different actor. Therefore, you have to start again. And I feel the problem with the Jack Kira character in this film is that, yeah, she's not that prominent in Pitch Black anyway. But yeah. when she's reintroduced, she's kind of introduced a little bit late in the story. Mm-hmm. She has like one scene towards the beginning, but then we don't see her again for like half an hour. And then she's introduced again. And yeah, she has very little impact on the plot and have very little character to her mm-hmm. other than I'm tough and I had to be because you left me. And that's about all that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. Her story. Yeah. And then, yeah, she does essentially become a damsel in distress. And yeah, she's just part of the whole section of the film where I just felt like I've seen all this before in other films. Yeah. In a strange way. And I didn't really think about this until afterwards that there's... It's strange because I feel like I've seen some of these scenes before in films made before and after it. And I was thinking about the prison escape in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. That I feel actually slightly rips off some of the things that was done in this film, especially in regard to the the sort of circular room that goes up. Yeah. Like it goes up in like a lift thing. And I know like... Like a corkscrew. Yeah. Yeah. In Guardians, he sort of flies it, doesn't it? I can't remember. Yeah. Yes, he does. Rocket flies. That's it. I was like, yeah, that's... It's pretty much been taken wholesale. I mean, it's, it's just executed, it's just been compl- executed in a different way, different but way yeah, and probably are, better. Yeah, but I can imagine James Gunn watching this film and going, yeah, I'll take a note of that <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, it just felt like we'd gone into sort of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom yeah. <laughs> places. And you, and you mentioned before we actually began recording that it reminded you of Alien Resurrection. Yeah, all, all the mercenary characters, they just looked Josh Whedon-like, Josh Whedon-like characters from... Yeah. Firefly or Alien Resurrection and like you were saying we were saying before that the character of Tombs is basically a Ron Perlman alike yes. character and when I first saw the film before I really had a handle on who Nick Junland actually was an actor I really quite like who's always in well often in some terrible films um, <laughs> he has a great voice but he's cut from the same stone as Ron Perlman and when I first saw the film I was like is that Ron Perlman as the film went on I realized it wasn't but yeah I did mistake him at first yeah but you are right, that is the entire section of the film where it is at its most derivative. It does return to type. It is playing to 
the pitch black audience and i assume just ticking a box that this is what some audience members will be coming here for so we need to give it that connective tissue yeah. although i felt like they'd already done that with the opening part of the film yeah, where they catch yeah. him i was like that's a good place to have it it's a good in for people who've seen pitch black and now we can go into the new thing it feels like and a step it, backwards and it feels like oh we're going back into that one and it's like it feels like a completely different film yeah and when we go back into the other stuff it feels really jarring yeah especially when the necromongers go onto the planet and it's like oh yeah they're involved and it's like they don't really fit with what's going on here mm-hmm. and there's other strange weird lapses in logic like, there's a huge set piece about them obviously going down to this prison thing that's like 29 kilometers or something like that yeah this train you think is underground but the way they stage it when they go back it's like it's all under the surface yeah it's, it's like, all just so, slightly under so the surface yeah. you get that thing where it's like why the fuck is the hangar so far away from the actual prison <laughs> you know what i have never actually made that connection before but you are absolutely right why the fuck does the hangar need to be 29 kilometers yeah. away from the prison itself and it's only there so they can have that set piece so they yeah. have to run a, you know run, a, <laughs> run across the surface I never realized it. It's like, even within itself, I think there's some cool stuff there. I like the run across the surface against the sun rising. I think that's a good chase sequence or a race against time sequence. I just wish I had more of an emotional connection to what was going on than the character that is Kira. Because I do feel like she is there to provide emotional stakes to a journey that Riddick was already taking without her inclusion. So she essentially feels redundant. And the fact of what they actually end up doing with that character in the end, where she becomes a necromonger and then is killed, it all feels flat and yeah. all a little I, bit I, just forced. Did, I didn't feel we, had, we spent enough time with her at all in order for that to really pay off in any kind of way. And she is constantly referred to as somebody who is capable of looking after herself. She's been raised amongst mercenaries. She is a badass in herself. But she does feel like a damsel in distress in mm. the guise of a badass. Yeah. Because every time we see her, she is incapable of defending herself. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the filmmakers were banking on people's memories of her from the original film. Yeah. To sort of reinforce that. But because she's played by a different actress and is essentially a new character, yeah. you just don't get that working in that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we get that kind of Paul W.S. Anderson style of writing where we have every character setting themselves up over the course of two or three lines before they're killed off. Like the... Um, oh, the-, the biggest one is the guy with the wedding ring the wedding ring is awful yeah and then he's like killed off in like five minutes time yeah and i mean the thing is very avp it it definitely is because i I don't mind the inclusion of a shot of him just like playing with his wedding ring that's about all you need really yeah in order to establish now i'll tell you my story (laughs) settle down yeah Yeah. it is the equivalent of the soldier in a vietnam movie saying you know this is my girl back home and then the next shot he's gun down in a hail of gunfire yeah all the, all those things that dunkirk didn't have and then people were yeah. like oh there's no character in this it's like <laughs> yeah. no there's all the shit that you don't need in this yeah it's all the cliches have just yeah, been yeah. taken out all of that kind of like i Hollywood got a girl bullshit. back home yeah she's called bruce it's like even the inclusion of him just playing about with the ring on his finger yeah. is probably a step too far <laughs> but like, in your like, face i do actually care about my wife close up on ring finger yeah. <laughs> It's unnecessary filler as well because the film's long enough as it is, you know. Yeah. It's like if he wanted to make a two-hour movie, which the studio clearly wanted it to be sub two hours, so that's why they gutted it of this extra 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you really wanted that, take out shit out of this section of yeah. the film. You know, that, that was the section. It's the, it's the middle that drags. And because it starts in a way in which you've already had your stepping stone from an action film into a space opera mm. already, 
And at this point, we've got to make that step yet again mm. because the film's already gone back and it, it almost fails to do so and it becomes a bit jarring. And yeah, we kind of have to get back up to speed with what's going on anyway because it's kind of, you know, there's all sorts of machinations going on mm-hmm. within the necromonger world and we just sort of go away from that for quite yeah. a long time and then we have to be delved back into it. I think the main problem with the necromonger part of it as well is it's a shame that the main villain, like the head, well, he's probably not the main villain, but because of the way that he's actually been portrayed in the film, but mm. the supposed head honcho of the Necromongers is probably the least interesting of the characters yes. that we see. Because there's about four main Necromonger characters. We've got like the the two Varkos, we've got the Purifier, and then we've got the Lord Marshall. And it's yeah. Lord Marshall that's probably the I'm gonna call him Jason Clark's dad. Yeah, he does. He look looks like an awful it. lot like it. It looks like a mix of Jason Clark and Jason Statham. <laughs> yeah. <He's> like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's the least interesting of the group. He is. I actually like the purifier the most. Yeah, um, yeah. Played by uh, Linus Roach. Ken Barlow's son. Ken Barlow's son. Yeah. yeah. He done good ish. Or, or, Tom- <laughs> or, or probably better known as uh, Thomas Wayne in, in Batman yes, Begins. Yes, of course. But yeah, I think he's the most interesting. But yeah, you're right. And they actually try to inject some kind of ham-fisted backstory with the character being the one that's responsible for the Furian slaughter so many years ago and whatnot. Yeah. I don't mind that element, but I don't like that Riddick's character himself has an actual memory of him. Yeah. Like, you didn't have to make it that personal. The idea that the Necromongers have already wiped out the Fiorians or whatnot yeah. is strong enough because that's what they do as they go from planet yeah. to planet. Although I thought if you were going to do that, it might have been better to have used the Varco character because he, he comes across better in the film. Yes. And he's more prominent yeah. in the film. He's essentially the main villain, even though the film wants you to think that the Lord Marshall is the main yeah. villain. Yeah. And in terms of the setup, it's got him in the henchman role, but actually treats him like a main villain. Yeah. He's the one who you're given, really, the most time to attach any type of emotional connection Yeah, he's connection the one with the most it. development because of Sandy Newton's character yeah. as well. And I like all of that stuff. I like of all of that kind of ham-fisted Shakespeare stuff that they have going on. Yeah, and, uh, I just felt like, didn't I, like I, it. I felt like I was watching. Uh, yeah, I just felt like I was watching David Lynch's Dune again. Yeah, like, with all the for like, dummies. All, all, yeah, but all the hammy stuff because there's loads of hammy stuff. Oh, in, yeah, yeah. in the the Lynch Dune. And I imagine there would have been loads of hammy stuff in the Jodorowsky gene if they'd made it. <laughs> so yeah, no, I loved all that stuff. There's a couple of strange camera shots in there, especially in terms of anything to do with Thandie Newton. You know, when it zooms to a close-up. Yeah, like whip, zo- not whip, whip zooms, whip, but smash zooms. Smash that's zooms, what they're called. Yeah. yeah. But no, I, I just liked that how everyone was kind of having fun with it. Even Judy Dench and stuff like. I mean, Judy Dench always has fun, but it's like everybody. She seems looked like, like she didn't quite know what she was saying. Oh <laughs> what no, she was no, doing absolutely. <laughs> She had a bit of Sean Connery and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen about yeah. her, like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm just... <laughs> well, it did baffle me, though, how much uh, the, the lengths they went to to get her in the film, considering she's probably in it for all of five yeah. minutes yeah, in terms yeah. of total screen time. I imagine her character is included quite a lot in those extra two binders <laughs> that were never yeah. opened. Apparently her dress was entirely made of Swarovski crystal or something like that. Yeah? They obviously haven't heard of plastic beads. <laughs> Oh, the only beads they've heard of are anal beads. <sighs> the smelliest of beads. <laughs> um, and <laughs> sorry, a little bit of a diversion. The smelliest of beads. Yeah. Whoa, her dress really stinks. As you can see, the tone hasn't changed, even no. though the format has. <laughs> no, we are still very down there in the gutter. Yeah. In terms of tone, <laughs> I've got to mention one line that I actually wrote in my notes, just looking through them now. I meant to mention before when we were talking about the stuff on crematoria. Kira actually turns around at one point and says, um, remember when I said about not caring if I lived or died? 
you know, to Riddick. Yeah. And it's like, I lied. It's like, well, of course... You pretty much said it with quite a lot of conviction before. Yeah, but it was literally 30 seconds ago. It was the scene before. (laughs) Of course I remember. You've barely just finished a sentence of telling me. Yeah. Maybe there were more scenes and they just cut them out before they even shot them and then forgot about it. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a lot more running. Yeah, and then went, oh shit, when they they came to the edit. Oh, that was the scene before. I'd like to see the loneliness of the long distance runner, only that the main character is played by uh, Vin Diesel. <laughs> I imagine that's what that section is missing, is just him running that 25 kilometers in real time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just keep thinking about that middle part, how much it just weakens everything else, because I was thinking about the, the purifier. We probably needed one more scene with him in order for yes. that to really pay off. Yeah. Because I really like the way that he, his last scene is great. I like him going into the sunlight and burn. That was a really great, it's a great, really great scene. Moment. I, I think yeah. it's strong. But I don't feel like it's earned enough because you see him quite a bit at the beginning when they have the conversion pitch. Yeah, really, he's sort of pitching the conversion to all these people, and then he's in a couple of other scenes in the background. But then we don't really see him. He doesn't really say anything again no. until that other scene. So we need like a middle scene in order to sort of reinforce his yeah. his character yeah. a little bit in terms of the audience. And I'm saying that as a first-time viewer as well. I guess that's part of the problem as well, is because they go so headfirst into the space opera stuff, all the Necromonger stuff, all the Underverse stuff, and really commit to it for the first act, essentially, or the first half of the film. Then they dial back on it almost completely, almost to a standstill. They disappear from the film Mm. for a bit, really. All you do is you you get some cutbacks to some scheming by Varco, and their whole element of the film is just kind of left behind, whereas really, they really needed to still be involved in the picture and Riddick's journey. Yeah. And that would have provided the opportunity to have the purifier come back into it, and you are right, we needed another scene of him coming to realise the extent of how far he has drifted from his Fiorian roots, uh, rather than it just being... Again, it's another development that kind of happens between scenes, much like Kira's development happens between films. Yeah, Um, I just felt like there were too many elements in the film. I felt the film would have been so much more focused if they'd kept it on one planet. Yeah. Like, they were ambitious in one area, but then they were trying to shove too many things into the part, uh, a symptom of many a flawed film. And I think that shows in the special effects as well, because the special effects range from being absolutely stunning to really cringeworthily bad. I was noticing in the, watching the credits, there's quite a few different effects houses involved in different aspects of the production. Not surprisingly, the best looking thing is probably those creatures that were in the prison and they were done by ILM. As, as were some of the Necromonger ships falling, the yeah. opening shots and stuff like that, which works. It felt very um, lost in space. Yes. Sort of, a little bit like it, that. It does, it does, because it's the varying in quality that yeah. there is between. There's no consistency. It's not just middling things throughout there are some scenes in which the special effects are fantastic and other scenes in which it feels like i'm watching a ps2 game Um, especially when um riddick's almost crushed by that falling necromonger ship that's a really bad scene and that was actually a trailer shot oh really yeah yeah because we weren't mentioning how some of the battle scenes at the start weren't in the theatrical and they would have been put in for the director's cut which obviously wouldn't have a very large budget Mm mm-hmm not to the same extent that Exorcist Dominion. No, no, no. <laughs> they basically gave him five quid to finish the film. Yeah. But um, yeah, the budget's not going to be as much. So yeah, unfortunately, those effects aren't going to be as good as the ones that were included in the uh, theatrical version. Mm-hmm. 
but it's the whole film is sort of suffers from inconsistencies in in certain areas again i think it's just that they try to do too much yeah. they tried to do too much with the planets in terms of the uh, the scale of the universe they've already expanded it by including necromongers but no no we have to go from planet to planet to planet and that kind of stretches the budget thin as well. Mm. And also, they've tried to hide a few of their flaws in some very questionable editing techniques as well, especially during the action scenes. There's that action sequence on Crematoria where all, it keeps on like flashing different images like subliminally yeah. from different angles, and it's uh, very jarring. But yeah. you can see that actually there was probably supposed to be an effect here that didn't come through. So yeah, it, come, to... it feels a bit cheap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But you are right. Uh, when you watch the film with the commentary on, which I did for the majority of it, at least, every time there's a special effect on screen, it's like, oh, this came from double negative. Oh, this came from ILM. Oh, this came from some special effects house I've never heard of. And it's yeah, like, yeah. it was just scene after scene of him just saying that. And, oh, that one worked. That one didn't. This one worked. Ah, that one was a little bit ropey. And I like that he's actually kind of like a face and like that. You know, he, he recognizes when it doesn't quite come together. But yeah, yeah. overall, though, overall as a picture, I always say that I applaud ambitions even if the execution is lacking and i definitely applaud their ambitions and i recognize that they try to do something completely different yeah it's to a degree yeah um, with the film and i recognize that and i really enjoy that and i wish that the film landed a bit more so we could see a bit more of this world you can't argue that it's lazy filmmaking because there's definitely ambition and they're trying to push the boundaries a little yeah. bit with it but i don't feel like in certain places they were maybe equipped to do it maybe it needed like another writer to give it a, another polish and maybe a different director that's or it i else. actually think it could have probably used a different director david Twohey as a writer i still value his input but i actually think from a directing point of view that actually it probably needed somebody to come in and streamline all of that and to really focus on where the film works and cut out where it doesn't really. Yeah, yeah. I think he's actually the sole writer on this one. I'm just going oh, to a little check. Yeah, he's the sole writer because it's just the Wheat Brothers that are credited for creating the characters. Yeah. Yeah, the Wheat Brothers, uh, who we've mentioned before. Oh, what have on, we mentioned um, them on previously? Because they were in charge of writing and directing Ewoks Battle for Endor. Oh my gosh, really? Um, Gen- genuinely? And yeah, and they obviously co-wrote, <laughs> they co-wrote Pitch, Pitch Black. Black. So yeah, they're credited with characters created by Jim and Ken Wheat. Mm. So it's David Twohey's show yeah. and Vin Diesel's, obviously, because he's a producer and actually, on that as well. Because I like both Pitch Black and Riddick, even if they do have flaws, I like both of those films. And I do think they have their moments of subversion that really work, especially the end of Pitch Black. But that feels like David Twohey's wheelhouse. Whereas Chronicles of Riddick, even though there are these grand sections that really do work and there are things that he's doing with it that are very exciting, I think it actually needed somebody who had experience with fantasy and that type of realm to expand on it a bit more. Because I do not think that David Twohey is completely confident with the space opera stuff just because of how hard he reverts back to type once they get to Crematoria. That almost feels like, oh, we're we're getting too bogged down with space opera stuff. Let's go back to where I'm comfortable. Yeah, and then also the following film (laughs) is basically a a hard landing back into that world. Yeah, and and I like Riddick. It's fine. It's fine. It's not great. It's not bad. It's fine. But I actually feel like you could make something that could be approaching genuinely good slash great if you embrace those space opera elements that were established in yeah, Chronicles and it, of Riddick. And it's, and it's a shame because I feel like the Chronicles of Riddick 
kind of ends in quite a good place like yeah. the fact that he's now the leader of these necromongers i'm pretty sure that the original plan was to go to this underverse yes and explore that which would have been interesting i really loved the whole way that was made up about like are these characters that are kind of like half dead half dead yeah and they had all these weird like monitor creature things mm. and the fact that they use dead bodies to communicate like as a telephone with the weird vibrating oh, yeah. water and stuff There's some great scenes all of that stuff i absolutely love i love the architecture the production design of inside their ship as well the suits that they wear the look of them i love the law surrounding yeah, the them sets as well judy dentra's right the sets are amazing yeah in a way i do feel like in what the film presents of the necromongers it's almost like pulling a chapter out of the middle of a fantasy book yeah and reading it and then putting that fantasy book down and never reading it again yeah, yeah i feel like oh there's so much more that i want to see of this but we have yet to discover it yeah yeah and we probably never will <laughs> and we probably never will you're, yeah. you're probably right they keep talking about the next film being riddick exploring the underverse but we've yet to see it materialize in any meaningful way but yeah it's strange though in a way that like out of the three films that have come out i'm pretty sure this is like the lowest rated i'm pretty sure it's the lowest rated in terms of rotten tomatoes i do have the rotten tomatoes score for the film which is 29 percent even though it has an audience score of 65 percent however it is not the lowest rated film in terms of the imdb rating it, this has well the si- imdb rating is completely doesn't match the percentage on the rt though does it no no it doesn't it has a 6.7 out of 10 yeah um whereas pitch black has a 7.1 and riddick the sequel to this film has i think something like a 6.2 or 3 so yeah, it's actually yeah. gone down the studio is in a position now where they've split the audience because they've had two films that are completely different mm. they've had chronicles of riddick yeah. and pitch black and so no matter what they do next, they're not going to appease everybody. Yeah, yeah. And that's essentially what's happened. I still think that this is the way to go. If, if you're going to do anything with this series and with these characters, especially because, yes, Riddick may feel more at home in a world of mercenaries and bounty hunters and all that kind of thing. But that's been done. And we've seen those characters done many times. I like to see this character, like I say, with all the grace of a bull in a Shakespeare play. Yeah. That, he's that so- feels fun and entertaining. And he's more interesting in this world because of how much he sticks out like a sore thumb and how poorly he stands in contrast to these people. Like, it, he's completely different. And that's what makes this enjoyable for me. Yeah, in a way, I, I feel he suits the bigger stuff better because I feel like when he's talking to the mercenaries, yeah, we've seen all this before in Pitch Black, but also it's kind of too similar. Yeah, Whereas you could swap the lines. When he's with all the big stuff, it's like there's a much more subversion, which yeah. is what he's best at doing anyway. And then also, he kind of feels more dangerous in that world because like yeah. you've got all these all-powerful people, but he feels more dangerous than them. Yeah, in a way, and because he's not bound by their religions or their law or their, yeah. Um, and their, I just love that the end, even the ending is pretty good. How the fact that the Varkos have been plotting this sort of assassination all through the entire film, yeah. and at the last minute, Riddick basically just kills him for him, yeah, offhand basically, and they were like what and then then he becomes their leader it reminded me of an old doctor who story in that respect i think i think it's called the deadly assassin and it's about like an assassination within this kind of similar kind of world it's like a manchurian candidate kind of situation and in the end the doctor becomes the time lord president almost like accidentally yeah so in a weird way it feels like again that's another one of those things that they may have watched yeah thinking about it now it felt quite similar yeah in the way that everything you know everyone's regal and it's all but it's all corrupt 
tucked underneath there. So yeah, there's there's a lot of parallels, but I I just love the way that he goes through and careens through that world. And, yeah, like a bull in a china yeah. shop. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like if they do another one, that's they've got to go outwards. They can't do another contained. No, definitely story, not. Cause... And I imagine that's what's holding it up because they've already done this contained story yeah. twice now. And for me as well, I feel like my thoughts on Pitch Black as well. Like I just felt like that he was the best thing in the film. Like the most interesting part of the film, that character, which is obviously why they built on it for this film but i just felt like the whole rest of the film was kind of fun to an extent but it's incredibly derivative to the point where i felt it was kind of dull because it's a typical b movie where you've got all these characters and you're just waiting for them to be picked off so it's, it's very much like alien aliens yeah. and all that kind of stuff but i just felt in the way that it was executed was so dull and lumpen there were no twists and turns it was literally a case of they run away from the aliens yeah they run away from the oh we've lost one we run away from the we've lost another one and it's like it just felt like the whole film was like that yeah and there was no extra added element to it to really make it work i think the one element that made it work for me well one is riddick but also the one moment where the film has a twist or does something different in that regard is by killing its ripley character in the final yeah, moment, yeah. it kills its Ripley character, and it's a complete shock. Yeah, but I felt there needed to be something in the middle somewhere. It, you, you, needed... Yeah, definitely. But all the road leading yeah, up yeah. to that, that point that part is relatively... surprising. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the road leading up to that point, it's straightforward. Yeah, because in that sense, I don't. It's not a film that really uh, it doesn't repay on repeat viewing. Really. Yeah. Like, you've got your gore and all that and everything, and that's all very well and good, but it's not a film I particularly would ever go and rewatch. <laughs> well, before we move to our question section, where I'm going to ask you the questions as to whether or not these this is a film that's best forgotten or best of the forgotten, mm-hmm. I just want to remind you that this is what Empire had to say about the film. They said it's no Battlefield Earth, but it's no Dune either. And no, before you ask, it is not destined to be a cult classic. And they gave it two out of five. And I'm going to draw from that in my final thoughts of this film and say, actually, I think it has grown over the years. There's still interest in Riddick. And I think the response to the most recent film has shown that people actually do want to see more of this space opera stuff. It may just be Vin Diesel. (laughs) <laughs> and, and me but, but i do that's want enough to, i do want to see more of it this is where this is where cult audiences begin yeah but um I, I do think that actually there is a small fandom out there a small passionate fandom that are waiting to see more and if a film is to explore more of the space opera the necromonger universe more of that kind of shakespeare stuff i am absolutely down for it but I don't want to see another Monsters in the Dark movie yeah. from this series. It's been done twice and it doesn't need to be done again. Mm-hmm. And it's been done in other better films as well. Yeah. Leave that to sci-fi channel movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did think, yeah, Pitch Black, it does feel like a sci-fi. It's a bit better than a sci-fi channel Yeah, movie, it was ridiculously like, low budget. But, but it, it, did, it does feel like sci-fi channel movies have yeah. been remaking that film for quite a long time. They have, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Andy, I have to ask... The main questions as we wrap up now. Mm-hmm. Are you any closer to understanding why Chronicles of Riddick has been forgotten? Yeah, because it's one of those films where it's great because of its ambitions, but it's incredibly flawed. But then because of those ambitions, the audience weren't expecting it. And I think there is, there's never really been a market for huge space operas, at least in the last 30 odd years, mm-hmm. outside of Star Wars. So I feel in that respect, yeah, it's been forgotten for quite a few reasons. But um, I feel like there is 
merit in there that I think people maybe didn't see at the time. Yeah. And yeah, it seems odd that the elements that it succeed at the best are the things that people panned it for when it originally came out. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, like we say, there is a place for this type of film on, well, not as a film, but maybe as a limited television series that gives yeah. it more time to explore those elements of the universe. Yeah, and it would actually make more sense having a title like Chronicles of Riddick because yeah. even the title actually thinking about it doesn't make a heap of sense because it's no. like Chronicles <laughs> means that there's more than one and it's the one f- you've named your one film Chronicles <laughs> of Riddick because they tried to put the, the banner over the pitch black, the didn't entire they? Like, series, I was yeah. like why didn't they have an undertitle then yeah. for, the, for that film because it, it makes the whole series really confusing and it makes the last one called Chronicles of Riddick Riddick yeah <laughs> so yeah I don't understand but yeah I think a TV series would work quite well uh, yeah, maybe for even, you know, Netflix. I mean, even though Bright was horseshit. I um, think Bright is an episode for another day, yeah, really. but it's showing how much Hollywood movie stars now are willing to go into that world and do mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff now. I mean, not that Will Smith's really been on top of the world recently anyway, because he's had a long string of um, questionable films that he's yes, done in definitely. recently. But it does feel like, yeah, the landscape's changing for that kind of thing, and maybe this kind of thing would fit in better with that kind of world anyway. And finally, the question I ask at the end of every episode, is Chronicles of Riddick one of the best forgotten movies, or should it remain best forgotten? And I will come out and say first, it's going to come as no surprise, but I think it's actually one of the best of the forgotten movies. I don't think it's a 10 out of 10 film by any stretch of the imagination, but I actually think it does more right than bad. I've spoke at length about the elements that do work and the elements that don't. But like I said earlier, I always, always go to bat for ambition, even if the execution doesn't quite sell it. I like it when people try to do something different with established IPs and you always run the risk of upsetting the fans. And in this case, they did. And that's why it was forgotten. Yeah. But I will always go to bat for that type of movie and I will go to bat for Chronicles of Riddick. I really will. And uh, for me, yeah, that's why it is best of the forgotten. Yeah, I'm kind of a similar mindset. I mean, it's not a great movie. It's not a terrible movie. I'd say it's probably a good five and a half to six out of ten. Yeah, yeah, I'd say you're about right. Six out of ten is smack bang where I'd give it. Yeah, so yeah, I'd say yeah, it's one of the best of the forgotten. It's not a great movie in that because we've had quite a few really good movies. Yes, definitely. In that. Yeah, I don't want to put it into the kind of realm as Kingdom of Heaven. But it's it's firmly in that camp. It's nowhere near best forgotten. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. No, no, it's nowhere near that. (laughs) Jesus Christ. I don't think much can be... uh as bad as that no. i mean even the room is no. <laughs> probably better than dungeons and dragons definitely yeah there's some enjoyment to be had so now we are going to disembark from our usual format and hand it to you yes you the audience to decide the interactive portion exactly um there's going to be a vote on our twitter page if everybody who listens to this episode join us over there you can vote on whether you think chronicles of riddick is best forgotten or best of the forgotten and perhaps leave comments on our social media pages as to what you generally think of the film and you might hear them back in a future episode as we give you the results but for the meantime that's all we have for this week's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe and you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week when we'll be turning green with anger as we take on Marvel's The Incredible Hulk. But in the meantime, it's bye from myself. 
And by from not Vin Diesel, I can smell <laughs> beautiful scent of woman. It's been a long time since you smell beautiful, Andy. Mm. And it <laughs> smells pretty fishy from where I'm standing. Well, I haven't showered in days. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>